welcome. Uh, for those keeping score, we're up to AUL, that's the anatomy of the upper limb, number three, um, which I've entitled uh, the axilla and the breast. The next one's on the brachial plexus. Um, I want to point out, if I may, just our crowdfunding objectives with Anatopod to improve our equipment, professionalise the studio sessions and convert to an audio-visual format. You can contribute uh, at https uh, colon double dash at patron.podbean.com slash anatopod. Uh, that is all capitals at the end, A-M-A-T-O-P-O-D. I've put it in the attending notes that you can see and uh, I'll put a badge up into the uh, system as well. Any donation, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated and acknowledged. And I want to know what topics you want covered as well. I'll need to embed this as a patron badge to make it easier, but you can simply copy the URL link, and it's as simple as that. So I really appreciate that. Now on to the axilla and breast. Now, uh, in this podcast, I'm going to include the anatomy of the axilla and the anatomy of the breast. The next one is on the brachial plexus. I note that there are some anatomists who spend hours on the breast. I've not done so, as the anatomy here is fairly straightforward. And I tell, really, the anatomical story of the the breast. The anatomy here is, is told, really, through the eyes of someone who solely performed breast surgery in the UK and Ireland for about a three-year period. I want to thank... Um, my old boss, uh, Professor Niall O'Higgins, who really taught me a lot about the anatomy of the breast and how to do a mastectomy and wide local excision. Perhaps I should have stuck with it as the surgery was very formulated and basic and far less taxing than coloproctology, which I went on to do. I don't know, it uh, might have been a better life. Anyway, enough of that. The first thing to say about the axilla or the armpit <coughs> is that its anatomy is a bit artificial, or in a sense, really, the boundaries of the axilla are artificially created. It's a space lying between the inner aspect of the upper arm and the thorax, which, like all spaces in the body, which in this case allows the passage of neurovascular structures from the root of the neck to the upper limb. Now, in effect, it's bounded by the anterior and posterior axillary folds at the front, and the back, respectively, and is in continuity with the posterior triangle of the neck. Its clinical importance is, of course, the passage of lymph nodes and lymphatic channels from the upper limb and sidewall of the thorax, and also the anatomical arrangement of deep fascial sleeves that move from the neck to the upper limb. The fascia is actually, I think, a key to an anatomical dissection of the axilla and an axillary lymphadenectomy because that's the basis of treatment of breast cancer or some types of breast cancer and the occasional nodal clearance of the region that's needed in malignant melanoma or metastasizing squamous cell carcinoma of the upper limb. So we need to know uh, this particular anatomy. Now the key, I think, to demonstrating the vessels of the axilla is the axillary fascia. Last calls this the floor of the axilla, but it's not strictly correct. 
It's a deep landmark and it's identifiable because of its substantial um, sort of tough nature below the globular fat. The axillary fascia fills in the axilla and is the same fascia as that which extends to the side of the chest wall over the serratus anterior and that extends down the arm as the deep fascia of the arm. They're all interconnected. And by pulling away the superficial fat, you come across this thicker, white, denser fascial edge, which is the axillary fascia. And that fascia extends onto the front and the back of these axillary folds. It's attached uh, to the so-called suspensory ligament of the breast, the lateral breast tail, if you like. And that area can be a little variable, splitting as part of the clavipectoral fascia around the subclavius. But here it can even be a little ligamentous as a distinct band of tissue that stretches from the coracoid all the way to the first costochondral junction as a kind of costochorochoid ligament. So there can be some variability in the thickness of this fascia. Away from this area, the fascia is a looser, sort of felt-like network spreading to the upper pectoralis minor muscle where it splits around the front and the back of that muscle. Effectively, it's its epimysium. But after or below which it becomes the suspensory ligament of the axilla which directly connects to the axillary fascia. And that's the tensile part of the fascia that really forms the hollow of the armpit as you got slight abduction of your arm. <coughs> now, the deep fascia once breached is designed really to point the way to the axillary vein, which is the first thing that's identified. In an axillary dissection, one doesn't really extend above that area so that the axillary artery is certainly not exposed and consequently neither are the components of the brachial plexus which wrap around the second portion of the axillary artery. Now I'll reiterate this one doesn't extend above the axillary vein because of fear of a brachial plexus injury. Actually, there can occasionally be a small sort of crossing branch of the thoracochromial artery, which you do need to ligate, uh, and that sometimes means that you've got to be slightly above that axillary vein to deal with that. But the principle essentially holds. And in understanding this fascia, we understand how it fills in spaces a bit like the space really between the angle of the mandible and the mastoid that we spoke about last year and the way the parotid fascia fills in that gap. So it's a little bit like that. And in this circumstance, the fascia around the pectoralis major is then continuous with the clavicle and the sternum, passing over the infraclavicular fossa, an area called the deltopectoral groove, so that it's in continuity with the fascia covering the deltoid. And an appreciation of that fascia allows us also to appreciate the anterior exposure to the shoulder joint. The axillary fascia, what last is called the floor, as I've said, as it runs between the pectoralis major muscle in front and the latissimus dorsi muscle at the back. So it's a complex area or corridor that it in, in encloses, really. Now, you can notice that with that description, there's really no inferior limit that defines the axilla. And that's important. We need to understand the anatomy also, as I've said, of the deltopectoral groove, because it's the basis of that anterior orthopedic approach to the shoulder joint, saying open reduction of a fracture dislocation or a 
a Bankart's procedure, for example, in recurrent dislocation. And of course, it was the old stock standard approach to a direct exposure of the cephalic vein for long-term Hickman catheterization before the development, really, of the percutaneous method. And lying here is, of course, the cephalic vein receiving its tributaries of the thoracoacromial veins and the lateral pectoral nerve in, in that region is also seen. Now, although it's artificial, the axilla does have specific walls and I think that you can think of it like a corridor that is similar, really, to the way we think of the inguinal canal. So it's got a front wall, a back wall, a medial wall and a lateral wall as well as a floor. The anterior wall is largely the pectoralis major, but it also includes a pectoralis minor muscle and also, I suppose, the subclavius and the clavipectoral fascia, which we've mentioned. The posterior wall is made largely of the subscapularis muscle, which strictly also includes the teres major muscle inferiorly or infralaterally. The posterior limit of an axillary dissection, as you dissect backwards, however, is the tenderness part of the latissimus dorsi, actually that part of the latissimus dorsi which winds around the lower border of the teres major. And there it becomes tenderness, quite thick, uh, but also quite short as it's going towards the humerus. And that's relevant because in dissecting in front of this tendon, you actually locate the neurovascular bundle, that is the thoracodorsal nerve and artery, or if you like to think of it, the nerve and artery, to the latissimus dorsi. And the neurovascular bundle that's preserved in a latissimus dorsi myocutaneous flap, which is used for reconstruction, particularly after a mastectomy. So the posterior limit of the axilla really is that tenderness part of the lap dorsi. And then if you run forward onto that, you're going to get into the neurovascular bundle. You're going to see the nerve to latissimus dorsi or the thoracodorsal nerve and its associated artery. And I'll come back to that later. That sort of stuff is actually pretty important. The medial wall of the axilla is largely formed by the serratus anterior muscle and its nerve, uh, which is the nerve to serratus anterior. It's also called the long thoracic nerve. It's also called the, the long thoracic nerve of Bell after Sir Charles Bell, who was an 18th century Scottish anatomist, although he lived in London, who described a lot of anatomy of the peripheral and central nervous system um, and how it was basically set up. Um, the anterior and the posterior walls of the axilla converge to embrace the intertubercular groove of the humerus. So they've got kind of broad origins, if we're going to use that term, and narrow insertions, if we're going to use that term. And if you look at it, there's no, as I've said, inferior limit to the axilla. It's a little bit like the bottom of Gerota's fascia around the kidney. There's actually no inferior limit to the space, so that's why I said it's somewhat artificial. The apex of the axilla is bounded by the clavicle and the first rib. Really, the first rib is as far as you can get, the point really where lymphadenectomy is completed, where the axillary vessels become the subclavian vessels. Now, we need to know in the axilla a couple of muscles here, namely the subscapularis and the teres major. 
We don't really see the subscapularis unless the fat of the floor of the axilla is clear. And I must say, we were, we were always told not to dissect this area because there's a very rich subscapular venous plexus. And from my experience, that just is not true. And it can be cleared well with Debakey forceps by gently stripping this area. And it's important, as it does define the thoracodorsal vessels, those are the um, the um, artery, the latissimus dorsi artery, which are part of the subscapular vessels. And that subscapular artery gives a branch, sometimes a couple of branches, anteriorly into the back of the breast, which in this area needs to be formally divided, that little artery. And that allows the main subscapular artery or thoracodorsal artery at that level to remain intact for a myocutaneous flap. And the muscle uh, uh, arises from the costal hollow of the scapula, that subscapularis, actually its medial part, with some intermuscular septi which ridge the bone. If you've got a scapula, you can see that. Um, the origin extends as far uh, as the infraglenoid tubercle. This multipennate muscle is separated from a large subscapular bursa, which directly communicates with the glenohumeral joint, where there's a gap between the superior and middle, rather weak, glenohumeral ligaments. And it's inserted, that is the subscapularis, into the lesser tuberosity of the humerus and a little inferior and medial lip below. The nerve supply to the subscapularis is via an upper and a lower subscapular nerve, both of which are separate parts, and because it's posterior, parts of the posterior cord of the brachial plexus, and that's a, a C5-6 myotome. The muscle is one of the classical rotator cuff groups and provides shoulder stability, assists in the fixation of the humerus when there's movement of the elbow, forearm and hand. And it's clearly also, obviously, a medial humeral rotator. The other muscle that we haven't considered yet is the teres major muscle. We've considered in the previous podcast the pectoralis major and the latissimus dorsi and the serratus anterior, so we've got only the teres major. And that muscle's best thought of as an offshoot, really, I think, of the subscapularis, which has just kind of migrated dorsally onto a small triangular origin on the back of the inferior angle of the scapula. But for all intents and purposes, its action uh, is similar to that of the subscapularis. And it runs along with the subscapularis. It inserts into the medial lip of the intertubercular groove. The tendon of the latissimus dorsi actually runs around its lower end, and it inserts in front of it into the bottom end of the intertubercular groove, a very short but stout insertion. The nerve supply uh, of teres major is in continuity with the lower subscapular nerve, so that's C5 and 6, and it runs typically between the subscapular and the circumflex scapular vessels in a small window, which we usually don't really see, but that's how you would conceptualise it. It's also one of the shoulder stabilizers with lower arm movements. It's an adductor, it's a medial rotator of the humerus. And it does act also with teres minor 
to counter some of the abduction of the arm which might be initiated by deltoid. Now these muscles actually create a quadrangular space and also a triangular space and a triangular interval and there's often a bit of confusion of these sorts of things about this kind of thing. Uh, I think we should spend a little time clearing it up. The boundaries of the quadrangular space vary depending on whether you're looking at it from the front or the back. So you check this out if you're lucky enough to have access to a dissected cadaver or to a plastinated specimen. Try and orientate it as to whether we're looking at the subscapularis side on the front or the infraspinatus side on the back. And the space lies between the subscapularis and the teres major in the back wall of the axilla. That's looking at it from the front. The lateral border is the same front and back. It's the humerus. And the medial border is the same front and back. That's the long-headed triceps. The muscle runs in front, as I say, of the teres major. Now, if you're looking at the space from behind, the muscles are the infraspinatus and the teres minor, with the lateral and medial borders exactly the same as if viewed from the front. Now, that space, the quadrangular space, transmits the axillary nerve and the posterior circumflex humeral vessels. The quadrangular space, not the quadrilateral space. And below this space is the triangular interval, also known as the lateral triangular space, so that creates a bit of confusion. And also is the lower triangular space, and also sometimes called the triceps hiatus. So there's a bit of confusion of these. But... Um, Basically, uh, this is the triangular interval. And that is below the teres major muscle, and it's bounded again by the humerus or the shaft of the humerus laterally and the long head of the triceps medially. And that space is the space that transmits the radial nerve as the continuation of the posterior cord below the axillary nerve takeoff. And of course, along with that nerve is the profunda brachii vessels. And in theory, there's also a triangular space, as it's called, which laterally has the long head of triceps with the teres minor above and the teres major below. And that transmits the circumflex scapular vessels. Now, not surprisingly, because there's a quadrangular space with a nerve running through it, the axillary nerve, there is a quadrangular space syndrome of nerve compression, axillary nerve compression, mostly presenting, um, I think, as pain in the shoulder rather than anaesthesia of the so-called regimental area of the skin, which is the cutaneous nerve supply of the axillary nerve. And this can be reproduced, this type of pain or discomfort, by grasping the hand in a handshake and stressing the arm a bit laterally, which kind of narrows the space. So those at risk... Uh, I think are the overhead sports people, people who like to play a lot of volleyball, or I think also swimmers. And you can see how that may happen. It can be detected in abduction and external rotation also on angiography with a hint on an MRI uh, of some Terry's minor wasting. There's actually a good article from the Mayo Clinic on this in the Journal of Clinical Med in 2018 by Patrick Hunger, H-A-N-G-G-E, for those who are interested in it. The triangular interval syndrome also 
exists, as you might imagine, as a painful upper extremity in the occasional bodybuilder with restricted lateral rotation and a bit of Terry's major hypertrophy. And that would be exacerbated by someone standing with their legs apart and sort of punching the air. They get that type of pain uh, repetitively. So these sort of compression syndromes can exist. Now, the axillary contents. The axilla is the corridor or space uh, transmitting the neurovascular bundle of the upper limb. And that includes the cords uh, as specifically defined in their relationship to the second part of the axillary artery, the lateral, medial and posterior cords of the brachial plexus. Posteriorly is the axillary artery and anteroinferiorly is the axillary vein as well as the collection of axillary lymph nodes. Those are the contents of the axilla. Now let's talk a little bit about the axillary artery first. This is the continuation of the subclavian artery where it passes over the first digitation of the serratus anterior at the lateral border of the first rib. And that vessel is invested by the axillary sheath, which is in direct continuity with the prevertebral fascia. You can review the prevertebral fascia in the head and neck podcasts of uh, last year, and that's the first head and neck podcast on the neck triangles and fasciae. By definition, at the lower border of the teres major muscle, the axillary artery becomes the brachial artery. That's a common question as well. The division is, of course, as we know, that's the axillary artery, into the first part, which is above the pectoralis minor, the second part behind the pectoralis minor, and the third part below the pectoralis minor. Now, that division is important definitionally and operatively because it divides also the axillary lymph node dissections into a level 1, which is below the pectoralis minor, a level 2 behind, and a level 3 above the pectoralis minor muscle. Now, by definition, that second part of the axillary artery, as I've said before, is where the cords embrace the artery as lateral, medial, and posterior cords. That's their orientation. And so this has relevance in the mastectomy where one can see the area best actually by dividing the short tendon of the pectoralis minor muscle but leaving the muscle in place whilst removing the breast for example and the interpectoral lymph nodes um, the so-called rotters lymph nodes as they're known between the pectoralis minor and pectoralis major. Now where you actually do a mastectomy and you do that interpectoral decision uh, or excision of lymph nodes, and you actually divide the short tendon of the pectoralis minor just below the coracoid process, but leave the pec minor in place that allows you a greater vision of those lymph nodes, and that's called an Auchinloss mastectomy, A-U-C-H-I-N-L-O-S-S. Now, the axillary artery has particular branches, and it's easy to remember that the first portion has one the second portion has two, and the third portion has three. And this is important for the blood supply, particularly to the breast. The other reason why uh, this blood supply is, of course, of particular importance is a pre-existing anastomosis around the scapula. 
that connects the second part of the subclavian artery and the third portion of the axillary artery. I'll come back to that later. Now the first part of the axillary artery gives rise to a branch. It's often not really well recognised. That's the superior thoracic artery, which is a supply to both pectoral muscles and the upper breast. We don't really need to say terribly much about that vessel. The second part gives rise to the thoracocromial artery and the lateral pectoral artery, and they are important. The mnemonic for the thoracocromial artery is, if you'll forgive me, cats pee all day. Clavicular for C, P for pectoral, A for axillary, and D for deltoid branches. And that artery has venous tributaries that have homology, clavicular, pectoral, axillary, and deltoid. And they enter the cephalic vein with a cephalo-axillary connection. So they don't go into the axillary vein. And that arrangement is very similar to the arterial and venous arrangements of the femoral artery when we come to that in the lower limb. There the branches of the femoral artery are the superficial epigastric, the superficial circumflex iliac, and the superficial and deep external pudendal veins. And again, those venous tributaries don't tend to go into the femoral vein, but they'll drain into the greater or long saphenous vein, which joins the femoral vein at the saphenofemoral junction. So the venous tributary arrangement around the axillary artery, the thoracochromium in this case, is sort of very similar to the venous arrangement in the lower limb. Uh, unlike the lower limb, these superficial arteries, of course, are um, not part of a scapular anastomosis. In the lower limb, the superficial circumflex iliac artery takes part with deep branches of the external iliac and internal iliac arteries in a very rich anastomosis around the anterior superior iliac spine, and I'll go into that later. That's of relevance if someone has a common iliac artery obstruction because there's extensive collateralization that reconstitutes around the anterior superior iliac spine. To return to the thoracochromial artery, it skirts the upper lateral border of the pectoralis minor muscle, and the vessels actually radiate away from one another like the spokes of a wheel. And although, as I've said before, the general principle is not to go in an axillary dissection above the axillary vein, occasionally there are small branches of this artery which need to be ligated, and they can run in front of or above the axillary vein. So that principle is kind of true, but sometimes you need to work around it a bit. In this circumstance, any dissection above the vein, as I've said, needs to be conducted with extreme care because this is the territory of the brachial plexus. The second artery from the second portion of the axillary artery is the lateral thoracic artery, and that runs down the side of the pectoralis minor muscle and is a major lateral supply, blood supply of the breast and its substance. The third portion of the axillary artery gives rise to the subscapular and circumflex scapular arteries. Now, the latter runs laterally between the subscapularis and the teres major in the triangular space, which we've already mentioned. And after this takeoff, the subscapular artery is perhaps better known, not surprisingly, as we've said before, as the thoracodorsal artery. And here it runs with a nerve which is usually uh, medial, 
the thoraca dorsal nerve or the nerve to latissimus dorsi. And typically, the artery gives off anteriorly one or two stout branches to the back of the breast. And that's the point really where we have neurovascular preservation for use, as I've said before, in a latissimus dorsi myocutaneous flap for breast reconstruction. You've got to divide that small vessel going into the breast and leave the main thoracodorsal artery. I've said, of course, there are three branches from the third portion of the axillary artery. The other one is the anterior circumflex humeral artery that runs around the front of the humerus under the coracobrachialis and the biceps brachii, and it sends typically a vertical branch to the anterior shoulder capsule under the long head of biceps, as it is at this point, uh, as that muscle is actually intra-articular. And then the third branch is the posterior circumflex humeral artery, and that's usually much larger than the anterior one, and it runs between typically the subscapularis and the teres major around the humerus, but lateral to the medially running long head of triceps via, as I've said, the quadrangular space, so that the posterior circumflex humeral artery runs with the axillary nerve, which usually lies above. And it also gives a branch to the shoulder joint and anastomoses with the inferior profunda brachii artery, which is running below. Now, one other point which should be included is the place of the dorsal scapular artery. This can be a little bit confusing, but that comes from the first part of the subclavian artery as part of the thyrocervical trunk. If you review your arteries from the head and neck uh, in the head and neck podcast that we did, I think this appeared in the blood supply to the neck viscera, uh, which I think was uh, AHN4, and uh, this includes a discussion of this. But Uh, The dorsal scapular artery comes from the first portion of the subclavian artery, part of the thyrocervical trunk, and that's actually what we're talking about, the transverse cervical artery, which may have a branch called the dorsal scapular artery, which can run with the dorsal scapular nerve. And that artery runs down typically the vertebral or uh, medial border of the axilla. There's a rich scapular anastomosis which occurs here with the suprascapular artery, which is also a branch of the thyrocervical trunk, and the subscapular artery, which we've just been talking about, coming from the third portion of the axillary artery. So thus there's a pre-existing collateral network that already exists between the first portion of the subclavian artery, that's the thyrocervical trunk, and the third portion of the axillary artery. So you can imagine if you've got an obstruction in that area between the subclavian and axillary artery, there's a natural collateral network that is already there. So both one in the upper limb and one in the lower limb. The dorsal scapular artery can be dominant with a poor contribution, actually, of the transverse cervical artery. And that's sometimes then referred to as the superficial cervical artery, a kind of variant And that process is similar, as I've stated, around the anterior superior iliac spine, which is normally contributed to by the superficial circumflex iliac, which is a branch of the femoral artery, by the deep circumflex iliac artery, a branch of the external iliac, by the iliolumbar artery, a branch of the anterior division of the internal iliac, by the ascending branch of the anterior division 
of the superior gluteal artery, which is a posterior division of the internal iliac. Got it? We'll have to do the lower limb at another time. But there's naturally a collateral network around the scapula if there's an obstruction between the first portion of the subclavian artery and the third portion of the axillary artery. I'm just repeating myself so that this sticks a bit. Now, regarding the axillary vein, that's the point of commencement and orientation, if you like, of the axillary lymphadenectomy. The venae comitantes of the brachial artery are joined by the basilic medial vein to form the axillary vein, and that passes anterior to the first rib in front of the scalenus anterior muscle to become the subclavian vein. The cephalic vein enters the subclavian vein after piercing the clavipectoral fascia, and it's approached in an open deltapectoral approach, as I've said, for a cannulation of a Hickman's catheter under direct vision. Normally, you make a deltopectoral incision, look for the cephalic vein, and uh, protect it, usually by putting some sutures alongside it, and then um, basically retracting it, usually medially. Now, we should go into a little bit of the anatomy of the breast and its relevant surgical anatomy, as some also uh, organisation of the axillary lymph nodes. Now, there's a whole lot said about uh, the breast <clears throat> and its anatomy in various anatomy books and lectures and so on. And it's not really particularly complicated. It has a particularly basic anatomical structure. So let's go through... I think, um, what we need to know. As a subcutaneous mammary gland, it's a modified sweat gland. It runs roughly, but not exactly, from the midline to the mid-axillary line and over the second to the sixth ribs and costal cartilages. There can be extension of tissue as it lies across the pectoralis major, the serratus and the rectus and in parts of the external oblique muscle. So normally as an axillary tail of spence, so-called, which lies in the medial axilla and which can appear entirely separate and with extensions over the lower rib margins, extensions even across the midline and even over the clavicle. In effect, a total mastectomy can neither be performed uh, as could neither a total thyroidectomy, if you think about it. And... The breast drains via 15 to 20 lactiferous ducts towards the nipple and the pigmented areola and its subcutaneous sebaceous Montgomery glands. Now there's a discrete posterior capsule under the breast which is effectively the pectoralis major muscle epimysium, an inferior continuation of scarpa's fascia. This is the plane of mastectomy or the inferior aspect of a wide local excision and it can be stripped away pretty easily with a finger if you get into the right plane. And this fascial plane is connected by strands of fascia to the skin, the so-called suspensory ligaments of Cooper after Astley Cooper and are classically involved in shaping the breast contour or maybe of course involved in tumours uh, of the breast with peau d'orange. The blood supply, we of course already know, the lateral thoracic artery, the internal thoracic artery with the so-called perforators, which are just the anterior intercostal branches of the second, third and fourth spaces being the most prominent. 
And these come out of the intercostal spaces in the medial part of the dissection of a medial lesion or a mastectomy, and they're either clipped or diathermied. They're fairly straightforward. There are, of course, the pectoral branches, as we've said before, of the thoracochromial artery, which tend to supply the upper breast parenchyma, so that the blood supply is effectively a circular anastomotic network. The venous drainage is similar, with the deep veins running with the arteries and with some drainage into the posterior intercostal veins, which then come back via the azygos or accessory hemiazygos systems, depending on which side you're on, and some making its way into the vertebral veins. And these are, of course, important pathways for hematogenous breast cancer metastasis. Now, I appreciate that the wider use of conservative surgeries for breast cancer and the techniques of breast cancer reconstruction and oncoplastic therapies, the surgical, oncosurgical anatomy of the breast, has become, of course, more important, as has the neurovascular supply to the nipple areola complex. As a reiteration, breast blood supply has three main sources, the internal thoracic artery, what we used to call the internal mammary artery, a subclavian branch supplying the medial breast via anterior and posterior perforator, so about 60% of the blood supply, the lateral thoracic artery, which arises from the thoracoacromial or occasionally the subscapular artery as well, can have a separate origin rather than directly from the axillary artery. And that supplies the lateral breast and its outer portions, perhaps about a 30% volume, if you like, of total breast blood flow. And the remainder of the blood flow is from the second to the sixth intercostal artery perforators. These are Direct vessels with the fifth and sixth perforators may, may be supplying the lower breast, so that's somewhat variable. And the second to fourth perforators are usually two centimetres or so parasternal. They run in the subcutaneous tissue, usually about half to one centimetre deeper to reach the nipple areola complex. And these vessels are obviously worth preserving as they form an anastomotic network for that complex and can be used in breast microsurgical reconstructions. The lateral thoracic artery ultimately anastomoses with the uh, internal thoracic artery and intercostal artery branches around the nipple areola complex. And the main nipple areola complex anastomotic network is subdermal running in the subcutaneous skin. So these are important more in preserving, particularly with circumareolar incisions or complete circumareolar incisions, as may occur in the first instance in a microdechectomy, for example, or um, in the second instance, perhaps, in a breast reconstruction or a breast reduction, a kind of so-called strombic reconstruction. And they affect, obviously, the, um, the blood supply, the vitality of the skin. The view is that sparing the nipple and the areola in a reconstructive operation uh, is not actually of great value if the nipple is left insensate post-operatively. Sensory innovation comes from the lateral cutaneous branches of the second to the sixth intercostal nerves. Uh, that's actually their medial components. And each of these nerves has a specific in infrastructure, which I will go through formally in another podcast. But the lateral branches of these intercostal nerves tend to exit the chest wall 
and the anterior at the anterior border really of the serratus anterior and these branches cross the breast parenchyma as deep branches supplying the nipple areola complex from behind the anterior branch of these nerves are very superficial and they don't cross the breast parenchyma uh, they approach the nipple areola complex from the medial side and the second and third intercostal nerves form the superior cutaneous nerve supply and it's supplemented a little by the anterior and medial supraclavicular nerves from the cervical plexus. The rest of the breast innervation is from the fourth, fifth and sixth intercostal nerves with each of these bringing in sympathetic nerves that affect blood flow, sweat gland, secretory function and so on. Nipple innervation is solely by the fourth nerve, largely via the deep branches of the lateral cutaneous nerve, intercostal nerve, with 7 or 10% or so from the superficial branches of the lateral cutaneous nerve. So these nerves are best protected if the surgical resection starts at the base of the breast and if skin incisions at the medial end of the areola are avoided or at least limited. The only other nerve we haven't considered, which needs to be considered, is of course the intercostobrachial nerve, really supplying the lower flap of the axilla, running across the lower part of the axilla. And that is nothing more than the lateral cutaneous branch of the second intercostal nerve. We'll go through individual intercostal nerves in greater detail in another podcast. But um, in general, the intercostobrachial nerve, not a bad term because it supplies the inner aspect of the upper arm as well, should generally be preserved as possible. A recent randomised controlled trial was reported in the American Journal of Clinical Oncology in May, actually, last year from Jordan, and it showed an improvement in the quality of life of patients where the intercostobrachial nerve had been preserved. Um, it is sometimes hard to preserve in the lower part of an axillary dissection, but it's usually relatively obvious. If it gets stretched or subject to um, a problems, it can get a painful neuroma. So there are sort of swings and roundabouts about this uh, thing. We should mention also that uh, if we're looking at the arm, the arm coming out, as I mentioned before in an earlier podcast, as a sort of limb bud and dragging the nerves with it in the brachial plexus, then all of the cutaneous innervation of the arm is from the brachial plexus, except the area over the cape region, that's over the top of the shoulders and the front, which was supplied by the cervical plexus through the supraclavicular nerves, they're being pulled down from the neck down over the top of the shoulder as the limb bud develops, and this area, the very upper inner medial aspect of the arm, which is innervated by the cutaneous elements of the intercostobrachial nerve. There's a kind of, just a little transfer as the arm, you can imagine, moves away as a limb bud. So those two little areas are areas of cutaneous innervation in the arm, which are in the upper limb, which are not part of the brachial plexus. Um, concerning the breast, I think Wuringer, there's a, a paper by him, has separated the fibrous septum of the breast, dividing it into upper and lower portions with major vessels running upwards to the nipple areola complex, extending medially to the lateral pectoralis minor edge at the second rib level. There's a horizontal septum that's a suspensory breast 
scaffold and there's also a vertical septum which runs across the nipple areola complex and joins the horizontal septum so that the lower breast is effectively divided into two portions and it compartmentalises it for breast surgery planning. There are some recent articles on changing the kind of anatomical approaches to the breast but I don't think we need to particularly go into them. The main things people are going to ask you are really the blood supply and I guess something about lymphatics as well. Now, auxiliary lymph nodes and lymphadenectomy are relatively standardised, but I would point out that there's a big difference between the theoretical and some, what somebody might ask you in an exam and the practical concerning auxiliary lymph nodes, what you actually do at surgery. In practice and in dissection of the cadaver, we don't see the different sort of recognisable lymph node groups that the anatomy textbooks talk about. Um, we used to conduct a four-level auxiliary dissection in Ireland as packages of a level one, two and three lymphadenectomy and then another surgeon would come in to clear the axilla as what uh, Professor O'Higgins referred to as a, a level four lymph node retrieval. And almost always lymph nodes were found, although the patient stage of breast cancer hardly ever altered, I think, if at all. And most of the lymph nodes were found either in the one position, that's below the pec minor, clearing that up as much as possible, and in the three position above that near the first rib. And I think, you know, the second surgeon who comes in, is their job is to pick up extra lymph nodes. They're going to be sort of super diligent. And um, so there's a, a little bit of artificial nature about it. But the point I'm trying to make is that although there are these separate lymph node groups, you don't really see them either at surgery or in the cadaver. You recognise them in general, and I'll explain what I mean, but they're not absolutely um, uh, distinct. Now, uh, my point is that the recognisable boundaries of dissection do exist. We've gone through those in the axilla, and they're the boundaries of the axilla. But we do recognise, I think, deltopectoral lymph nodes against the cephalic vein and along the lateral border of the pectoralis minor, laterally are so-called pectoral nodes. But we know where central and apical nodes are, really, without distinguishing the two. The interpectoral or rotter's nodes are also clearly evident. Now, that's practical, but the examiners sort of want more. So we recognise particular subgroups of lymph nodes. By the way, we see the same thing, I think, between theoretical and practical. Uh, inguinal lymphadenectomy for melanoma, for example, the separation between superficial and deep groups, medial and lateral groups, is not absolutely the kind of thing you see in an inguinal lymphadenectomy. Anyway, to be a little bit more precise, the average number of auxiliary lymph nodes varies between 35 to 50 and the quality assurance of an auxiliary lymphadenectomy so that we've got an acceptable rate of false negative cases is about 14. And we say this so patients are, if possible, kind of never under-treated, rather than the risk the other way of over-treatment, which for breast cancer is more acceptable. So we don't want to be under-treating patients, picking up patients who we think are node negative, who are actually node positive. There's not the greater disaster of treating patients uh, as if they're node positive who are actually node negative. So the group one, the groups that we formally recognise for the anatomists out there, 
and the anatomy students are anterior or pectoral nodes. These typically lie alongside the lateral thoracic artery. We often don't see that. And they can also lie along the lateral border of the pectoralis minor or even against the medial wall of the axilla, that's against the serratus anterior. And these nodes are the main drainage of the breast. They also drain the upper half of the trunk and even part of the upper limb. Number two, there's a posterior or so-called subscapular group. And these we do clearly recognise along the subscapular vessels. We see them in the depth of the dissection over the subscapularis muscle. And I point out again to clear this small subscapular venous plexus, which is markedly overrated in real life. You want to clear all those subscapular vessels and show the thoracodorsal artery and the thoracodorsal nerve. It means clearing those little plexus of subscapular veins. They are not as bad as people say. And these receive from the upper posterior half of the trunk, these nodes, and include the lymphatic drainage of the axillary tail. The third group is a sort of true lateral group along the medial part of the axillary vein running from the upper limb. And I'd include here the specialised deltopectoral group, which run in the same plane and places the uh, same plane and place as the uh, cephalic vein. Now, some books refer to this group of lymph nodes as the humeral group. And then four is a central group of lymph nodes, and that receives all of these groups, but it's difficult to identify separately at the dissection what a central node is. And then five is an apical group. It's also not really separately identified, but it drains into the subclavian lymph trunk and may connect with supraclavicular lymph channels, draining into the thoracic duct on the left or the right lymphatic duct on the right, depending on how the subclavian and jugular lymph trunks hook up. And then we should also not forget that there's a medial parasternal group. So that strictly leaves us with six groups, an anterior or pectoral group, there's a subscapular or posterior group, there's a lateral group which includes the deltopectorals, there's a central and an apical group, and I suppose some parasternal lymph nodes. Now, strictly there are vascular associations, so that the pectoral group associates with the lateral thoracic vessels, the subscapular group with the subscapular vessels, the humeral group with the distal or third part of the axillary vein, the central group for location with the second part of the axillary vein, the apical with the first part of the axillary vein, the interpectoral group with the medial pectoral nerve, and the parasternals with the internal thoracic arteries. And we know that up to even 20% of patients with a medial-sized tumour may have parasternal node involvement. So these have been done from formal parasternal node dissections. I should also mention that the anatomical classification of axillary lymph nodes has undergone some recent variation. Part of this newer approach has occurred in light of the greater use of sentinel lymph node biopsies. There's a very good article on this, uh, I think, by Clough uh, in the British Journal of Surgery only a couple of years ago, I think about 2020. And I'd also uh, point out Roberto Cirocchi's recent article in the World Journal of Surgical Oncology on the subject for those who want to delve a little bit more. Another reason for this interest has been in the elucidation and prediction of post-operative lymphedema, which can vary between 10 to 40%. I had a friend who had a very disabling case of this. Um, the sentinel lymph node approach has 
clearly reduced the incidence of complete or so-called completion axillary lymphadenectomies and the identification really into two distinct lymphatic drainage pathways of the axilla, a medial one really of the breast and a lateral one of the arm. And that elucidation has occurred through the increased use of radioisotopes. And I think it's of relevance in reducing arm lymphedema uh, through a so-called reverse axillary mapping, as it's called. And that approach has led to two distinct lymph node mapping systems uh, for those interested. In, in 2020, a French group led by Clough mapped the lower axilla, which was based on the intercostobrachial nerve, which we've already mentioned, and the lateral thoracic vein. The idea behind this was to suggest that the sentinel lymph node uh, positions were not random with the intersection of these two lines leading really to four quadrants, an inferior medial zone, a medial and superior zone extending to the axillary vein, a lateral and inferior area effectively outside the zone that we need to concern ourselves with, and a supralateral area outside the zone as well. So in their study, really of a couple of hundred cases, you can review this in the British Journal of Surgery, almost all of the sentinel lymph nodes lay in those first two zones. In other words, infro and supra medially. And clearly this would limit the need for lateral dissections of the axilla where lymph nodes are not located and which increase the risk of lymphedema. So that's changed, in fact, even the nature of a completion axillary lymphadenectomy when indicated for positive sentinel lymph nodes. Um, it may allow some people to have different types of protected radiation, or as I've said, it'll modify the nature of an axillary dissection. I think as a corollary to that, in 2013, a Chinese group, which is headed by Li, um, used the intercostobrachial nerve as the axillary landmark, effectively dividing it into an upper and a lower part, a little bit of an easier classification. And in their dissections, I think of about... 75 cases or so, all of the lymph nodes that they found that's using sentinel lymph node biopsy were found below the intercostobrachial nerve. Now, when upper lymph nodes were seen, these only occurred if the lower nodes were already involved. And so it remains to be seen if an arm-preserving axillary lymph node uh, dissection is, of course, as oncologically safe when that's indicated. And that, that's the sort of future data that's going to come out. Uh, it'll limit the type of auxiliary lymph node dissection with a limited risk of lymphedema to see if it's as oncologically safe in selected cases. Now all of this has importance obviously in the sentinel lymph node era and even in low volume auxiliary nodal burden disease where radiation can still be used with some degree of upper limb protection. Um, I had just, I created uh, some notes, also some little bullet points. Uh, axillary lymph node dissection can be avoided in negative sentinel lymph node cases and in those perhaps with one or two positive sentinel lymph nodes. We might have a, a take-home point like that. Axillary reverse mapping preserves arm lymphatic drainage and that's the reverse, if you like, of the sentinel lymph node. They're identified by blue dye or radioisotope or, um, or um, uh, endocyanine uh, green, which can be performed now 
as a combined mapping with uh, central lymph node mapping for preservation of arm lymphatics. I think also standard axillary lymph node dissection may not be absolutely necessary even for some patients with clinically positive nodes who receive axillary radiation and systemic therapy. An additional point might be that one or of the other things regarding ALMD, axillary lymph node dissection, applies to the negative sentinel lymph node, where long-term data shows that sentinel lymph nodes alone doesn't decrease survival when compared with axillary lymph node dissection in patients with a negative sentinel lymph node, and that axillary failure, that is axillary recurrence, is very low in sentinel lymph node negative cases. It's less than about a 1%. So as we know, axillary lymph node dissection reduces the risk of axillary recurrence, which overall can be as high as 15% in some cases. But in those with a negative sentinel lymph node, axillary lymph node is then unnecessary. So these are the sort of take-home messages. But we won't go too much into the clinical side of it. Um, I'd kind other students and listeners to check out also uh, Masakuni Noguchi's recent article on this subject, uh, Axillary Surgery for Breast Cancer, Past, Present and Future, which is in Breast Cancer last year. Uh, and if this is tricky to get, uh, people can let me know and I'll post it on the Anatopod Meta site. So the next podcast is on the brachial plexus and includes a discussion of the osteology of the um, humorous at the end. Uh, So I look forward to seeing you next time.